This is On Mike with Jordan. Conversation alive and well with creative people who have a lot to say and a lot to offer. Today's guest joining me makes my job very easy. I could ask one question and take the rest of the day off. She's amazing. Her name is Donna Halper. She's a former disc jockey, music director, radio consultant, and currently one of the most respected radio historians in the country. She spent many decades in broadcasting before deciding to teach, and she's currently a professor at Lesley College in Boston. Now, Donna eats, sleeps, and breathes radio, and as you're about to find out, she's being recognized by her peers. Donna's known for many things in the industry, including having discovered a little rock band called Rush, who dedicated two of their albums to her. She's still friends with the guys today. We'll talk about that. Enough of me already. Let's get to Donna Halper. It's time to welcome Donna right here on mic. As we record this interview, it's my mission in life to say congratulations, muzzle tough. I'm talking to a Hall of Famer. It's amazing, isn't it? This is the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. I am uh, likely to be on stage when you receive your honorarium. Your, um, no, your honorarium. They're not paying you. Your honor. <laughs> Maybe they are your paying honor. you. Your honor. It's all the yes, your honor, no, your honor. <laughs> I have honorariums on the mind. Why wouldn't I? Congratulations. That's really a nice honor. Were you touched and surprised by this? I was absolutely stunned. In fact, when I got the phone call, it was from an old friend of mine with whom I go back in the industry years, okay? Uh, should I name him or would it make no difference to the audience whatsoever? Name him because it might make a difference to me. Okay. Well, Arthur Katz. I, I love Arthur. I love Arthur two bits and pieces. He was a former record promoter. I was a former music director. We engaged through the industry for years. And then we just kept in touch. So when he called, I thought he was pranking me. Okay, because, you know, it's Arthur and he's got this great sense of humor. And I'm like, yeah, right, of course. He said, no, I'm serious. I, this is for real. And I must have let out some kind of a scream or something because my poor husband is like, you know, in the next room watching TV because we had just finished dinner. And he's like, what happened? I'm like, I just got inducted into, to be honest with you, um, you think no one notices, okay? I've never, you know, Jerry Williams, they never gave me a dinner. Right? Well, I never expected a dinner, okay? I never expected a parade. A marching band might have been nice. but right. No, but I never expected any of that, okay? I've had a long career, by the grace of God. I've exceeded a lot of the expectations that people had for me. I'm still here. I'm still doing what I do as a media historian. And... The fact is, I never expected to be noticed for it. And to get this recognition from my peers, I am just, you know, it's well, like, oh, I'm so honored, but I really am. I, I spoke to you shortly thereafter to congratulate you on the phone, and I could tell you were just three feet off the oh ground. Oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. I but couldn't it, but believe it's, it. But it's so interesting you say that because people who have been so accomplished and have done so much and continue to do a lot— uh, many of them, like you, are too busy to stop and think about what other people think. You just do what you're doing. Well, to be honest with you, I've always been a very polarizing person, okay? People either like me or they hate me. There doesn't seem to be anything in the <laughs> middle, all right? Um, no, because 
back when I first started, there were all of these unofficial rules about how girls were supposed to be, and I guess I never got the uh, girl guide because mm. the things that I wanted to do, like being a sports broadcaster or things like that, I mean, I always loved baseball, this and that. The things I wanted to do, like being a DJ, today it's like ho-hum yawn. We have a daughter and our daughter wants to be a DJ. Isn't that cute? But when I was growing up, uh-uh, it wasn't cute. It was considered weird. And the fact that I was different from the other girls, the fact that I wanted to do different things than other girls, I mean, yeah, I absolutely wanted to marry. But I knew from the time I was four that I never wanted kids. Okay, it turns out I'm in the 10 to 12 percent of any population that is childless by choice. I was always thinking like, oh, maybe I'll adopt someday. But, you know, marriage, fine, as long as it was egalitarian. Mm -hmm. There weren't even words for those things. I don't know where I got it from. <laughs> but the fact remains, I knew what I wanted from the time I was a kid, and what I wanted was a career in broadcasting. I've got to ask you this because— uh, I'm babbling endlessly. No, 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 no. I love it. I love it, and I love you, and I'm so glad you're here. I've got to ask you this. Were you the kind of— youngster as I was, who stayed up later than you should have listening to radio late night? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. There was this thing some of your listeners may remember called DXing, which is listening for distant stations. Now, today, everybody kind of makes fun of AM, but back then, everything was on AM, mm -hmm. and you could listen late at night. Um, I'll give you an example, Okay. I just wrote a chapter for someone else's book. I'm always writing stuff for people and for myself. Um, and I wrote a chapter about Bob Murphy. And Bob Murphy was a play-by-play -play announcer when I was growing up. And he did the Red Sox games along with Kurt Gowdy. And some of your listeners may remember Kurt Gowdy, very famous broadcaster. Turns out he had come from Oklahoma City. I mean, he was from Wyoming, but he kind of made mm. a name for himself in Oklahoma City, oh boy, and that got him to New York and then to Boston, where he brought with him one of his old colleagues from Oklahoma City, a guy named Bob Murphy. Donna, what's your point? My point is that eventually... Bob Murphy got a better job. He got a job in Baltimore. And I'm crushed because he was one of my favorite broadcasters. <laughs> but thanks to DXing, late at night, WBAL in Baltimore came into Boston like gangbusters because there was a daytimer, WILD, that went off the air. And when it went off the air... In came everything else that was on that frequency. And I'm a kid, and I come from a working-class home, and we ain't traveling. I mean, I wish we were, but we weren't. And so the way I traveled was by radio. I could it, hear all those distant stations. And it's so interesting you mentioned baseball because some of the greatest announcers— to this day, have been our play-by-play -play and color announcers. Oh my in God! Yes, games. I know people that would go to the game, turn you know, you know, just bring their transistors with yes. them to you know, or, or they'd watch TV, but they'd turn down the volume on TV and listen to you know Vin Scully or Mel Allen or one of those folks describing the thing that they were watching. But these folks come from an era when radio was your best friend. You and I were talking like about a week ago about this, okay? I'm very old school about being a DJ. 
I'm also very old school about doing talk shows. I don't think that screaming at people or shouting at them or hanging up on them, I, nah. I come from an era where the host was like a best friend. And when I would listen to my favorite DJ, when I listened to Arnie Ginsberg or Bruce Bradley or any of those folks, they were like friends to mm, me. And mm. that's the kind of DJ I wanted to be. And that's the kind of talk show host I wanted to be. Well, you had a career, a successful career as an on-air talent, but then you did something that, again, at the time was unheard of. You built successful formats. You got into programming. Absolutely. And just let me uh, say this, and then I'll have you riff. The the programming that you did in one market, Boston, for one particular radio station is legendary, WHDH 850 at the time, became a powerhouse AM radio station. And a lot of it, if not all of it, is due to you and some of the well, work you did. I think some of it is due to me, but the truth is there were already some good people there. They had some personnel changes. They, you know, went through some things. It was a privilege to be a programming consultant at that time. And I consulted in markets all over the United States and into Canada and Puerto Rico. And, hey, I got to go to Alaska in the winter. Don't oh. <laughs> even ask. Could I get to go in the summer? Heavens no. Yeah, nice yeah. remote. No, no. Nice, nice but, you know, it's 40 degrees below zero today and one hour of sunlight. Whee! And we need Donna's help to yeah, exactly. fix this format. But see, that's the thing. It was really interesting to go from being a DJ to being a music director to being an assistant PD. But everywhere I went, I was an assistant PD. Mm. It was like always a bridesmaid, never a bride, because back then the belief was that, you know, the, the guy was the program director and the woman was his assistant. Now, don't get me wrong. I have nothing against being people's assistant. Fine with me. But if I've got the qualifications to move up, give me a shot. And for all intents and purposes at HDH, because of a variety of reasons that I will not get into because the people are not alive to defend themselves, um, I got thrust into that situation. And yeah, I believe I did some good things in the role, even though I never got the title. But I know what I did. And I was grateful for the opportunity. And can I say one thing about some of the people I worked with? Jess Kane. Some of you may remember Jess Kane. He was a morning show host and one of the best morning show hosts I've ever heard. Number one in the city, in a city that had a lot of really good talk show hosts. And I still remember, I had just gotten to WHDH, okay? And I'm sitting there doing my music director thing and Jess Kane walks in. Now, I grew up listening to and I'm like, ah! It's just Kane, you know, but I'm trying to just keep it cool mm. here because, you know, we're all professionals. And he hands me a tape and he says, will you go over this tape for me and let me know what you think? And I remember going home and saying to my then boyfriend, um, just Kane, the number one guy in Boston, just asked me to go. But but that's very typical of how Jess was. He wanted feedback. He always wanted to get better. He always wanted to improve. That's why I loved going into consulting, because I was able to help people get better. And yeah, that was consummate, so cool. consummate professional. Oh, God, he was. Yes. And, and uh, the fact that you worked among these living legends as, oh, yeah. a, as a young lady and as a person coming up in the business, 
gave you such a, uh, I want to say, a concrete foundation of learning and understanding, which brings us to the importance of history. In, and, and before we bring, before we do that, and I hate to interrupt, but something just came to my sure. mind. And this is something that younger listeners are probably not going to encounter, but I did. Okay. It was an era when anti-Semitism, when sexism, when racism was right out in the open. Okay. I mean, I literally had people make anti-Semitic jokes in front of me. Okay. When I was at various stations, including WHDH. Now, unfortunately, you know, you say something is, oh, you're supposed to be a good sport about these things. Nah, I don't really want to be a good sport about prejudice. So just, you know, Mm. please. But unfortunately, that was part of that world. And guys would like go into the uh, conference room and watch porn. (laughs) I'm like, what? Well, I, uh, you and I are very close in age. We're very young looking and feeling, of course. We're very close in age. We're adorable. And I remember one particular incident when I was at another AM station that stayed with me the rest of my life when the general manager at the time, whose name I will not mention, walked into the newsroom. This is the general manager, a glorified salesman right at the time, walked into the newsroom and referred to the women, the women in the news staff, as his news bees. Uh Oh, yeah. And I don't mean bumblebees. Oh, yeah. Um, I literally... I was had, shocked. Oh, I, uh, yeah. I literally had a general manager put his hands where his hands did not belong, and he just laughed. And I just looked at him like, excuse me? And he said, oh, come on, Don, be a good sport. And I'm like, uh, okay. So when people talk to me about the good old days, yes, I met some wonderful people. I really did. But I also met some people that, you know, if there's a hell, I hope they're rolling the rock up and rolling it right back down again Uh, for eternity. Let's talk a little bit, though, about the importance that you have leveled on the history of this industry, which, which you have done as a modern media historian better than anyone I know of. Why is it so critical, especially now in this generation, in this age, for us to really reflect on those who came before us and what they did and how they did it. And that's what's the important thing here, okay? I don't know if, you know, 50 or 75 years from now, someone's going to go, wow, that Donna Halper, she really made a difference. I don't know that. But I do know that I'm standing on the shoulders of some really wonderful people. I didn't get here all by myself, and it's a mistake to think that I did, okay? The truth is... An awful lot of people paved the way for me. They didn't know that they were paving the way for me, and both men and women, okay, because we're inaccurate if we say that, like, oh, the men were all this and the women were all that, because that's not true. It's always more nuanced than that. I had men that were very helpful to me in my career, and I had men that tried to stop me and keep me out. I met both. But what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. The importance of knowing history gives you continuity, it gives you context, and above all for me, it lets you say thank you. When I became 
the first female DJ in the history of Northeastern University back in October of 1968. One of the first things that came up for me is, I wonder who my mothers were. I wonder who was there before me, not at Northeastern, but at other stations. And when I went and looked in the history books of that time, nothing, Mm. nothing. And I'm like, that can't be right. And that set me on a journey that I've been on for four decades now to tell the stories of the forgotten men and women in broadcasting who contributed to us, who entertained us, who informed us, and who were there for us like best friends. I was able to find that first woman announcer, and one of the proudest moments of my life was when I, as a then-member of the board of directors of the Hall of Fame when I was able to get her inducted. Her name was Eunice Randall. She, of course, had passed, but she had living relatives, and they came to watch her get inducted. And I'm serious, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, okay? Because her niece said to me, I've been trying for decades to get someone to tell her story. And I'm like, hand raised, willing to tell it. And today I'm proud to say she is in the history books where she belongs because Eunice Randall was a pioneer. And as I said, I'm standing on her shoulders. So it's important for me to know who came before me, how were they treated, what did they encounter. There are things we can learn. What was going on in the society back then? How was broadcasting perceived? How were people in the culture relating to their favorite announcers or programs? We need to know this. Is it more challenging or less so to do the research now? I mean, you'd say to yourself, well, there's Google. I mean, everyone does that. But I mean, you're talking about stuff that's 60, 80, 100 years ago. Well, here's the deal. I always tell my students, believe it or don't, not everything is digitized. So it's been kind of cool to go to archives at colleges, at historical societies, just kind of going old school and looking at the documents and see, you know, holding them in my hand. I mean, somebody sent me a rare photo. It was like, you know, I think my uncle was on the radio. Like, can you tell me what station he was on? And while I couldn't tell them what station he was on right away, through doing research, yep, I was able to tell them what station he was on. Now, that's a small matter, okay? The guy never did become famous. But he was famous to them, and now they had this picture, and there was a story behind Mm. it. And that's what I'm about. I'm about telling those stories. So, yeah, sometimes it's pretty easy. You know, I I don't just rely on the Google because the Google can be bought. You know, you can do search engine optimization. You can pay for a higher result. But the truth is, if you know how to do research, the fact that a lot of good newspapers and magazines are now digitized, the fact that you can go to a wonderful website like worldradiohistory.com. It used to be AmericanBroadcastingHistory.com. Now it's World Radio History, I think. And if I'm getting this wrong, David Gleason is going to be furious with me. But (laughs) David, I love you. You got a great site. But the reality is there are so many magazines and newspapers now that are digitized, Mm. many of which aren't paywalled. 
And you can still go to libraries, love me some libraries, and find rare stuff. So yeah, on the one hand, it's a little bit easier to tell the story. On the other hand, it still takes some digging, finding living relatives, etc. Before we get to some of the other Donna Halper highlights, and there's too many to do with one mere episode. Oh, you're being when too you, kind. Well, you know me, Mr. Schmooze. When, you when, are. When we look back, when you look back at your early days on the air, and you've got several radio stations in your uh, toolkit that you can mention, were your friends likely to say, you know, Donna, I'm not surprised because you got the gift of gab? Or did they say, Donna, I never knew you had it in you? Well, <clears throat> let me be very honest. And I know when a lot of people are, let me be very honest. What? Everything else before this was a lie? Oh. <laughs> to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I, I don't talk a lot about college or high school or that period of my life because I didn't have a lot of friends. In fact, mm-hmm. I had very few friends. I was, like I said, perceived as kind of weird. Now, today, the things I want to do back then are considered normal. Like I said, Jordan, if you have a daughter and your daughter says, I want to go into pick one, radio, television, print, whatever, you're like, oh, okay, let's see what good schools there are that do that and this and that. Back then, I said that I was like ostracized. People couldn't believe it. This is not normal and so on and so on. So as far as- You're not a nurse or a teacher back then. Exactly. Or a secretary. Or a secretary. Um, And those are fine occupations, but they weren't for me. Mm -hmm. My parents just despaired. Like, where did they go wrong? They had a daughter who wanted to be a DJ, you know? I mean, this was just not being done back then. Plus, let's also be honest, I didn't look like a lot of the girls were supposed to look back then. I wasn't beautiful. I didn't have big, uh, well, you know, like Playboy Bunny type attributes. I didn't wear makeup. And I liked baseball, so they were like, oh, tomboy, you know? <laughs> no, just a girl who likes baseball, oh, you know? So the, the truth is, I didn't have a lot of friends. There were a couple of people I told, and they did believe in me. But the vast majority of folks out there were kind of like, eh, yeah, she was kind of different. So, yep, this is one more thing she's doing. Now, what's interesting is we now have revisionist history. Like, people who knew me from back then that, like, made fun of me are now suddenly my new best friends. You know, they're like, oh, my God, we always knew, you know, the, the men from the press said, we wish you success. It's good to have the both of you back. You know, this kind of thing. Well, that, I, I can I- identify with some of that because when I was in high school, I wasn't really picked on because I avoided. I ran fast. But I also wasn't an athlete or anything like that. And uh, everybody around me who was the big football star or the head of the student council and all these cats, you know, they were were on their way to glory and stardom. Then my first 10-year and a, let's see, 10-year reunion, I came back and People were all over me. Oh, you're on the radio. Oh, absolutely. Yep. I got a lot of that. I get a lot of that. So it's not who you are on the inside. It's what you do on the outside. Absolutely. So, you know, the truth is if you spend a lot of time worrying about praise or blame, it's going to drive you nuts. But I would be lying if I said it didn't get really depressing for a while because Mm -hmm. there were so many doors being closed on me. There were so many people saying, you can't, you'll never, you won't. Why don't you just like go be something that's more traditional? And when I finally broke through and got my first actual radio job, you know, again, there was no parade or marching band, but I was just hoping that maybe it would lead to something. And 
I've said this before and I'll say it again. I was in that generation that was transitional, okay? I never got equal pay. I did get sexually harassed. I did run into some major jerks. But you know what? I also ran into some wonderful people. I met a ton of celebrities, most of whom were like on the way up, but it doesn't matter. I was able to say that I was there at the beginning of their career. I mean, you know, Bruce Springsteen drank my orange juice. I mean, we're sitting in an event and it's Bruce comes. I mean, those stories I will have those stories for the rest of my life. I'm just a working class kid from Dorchester, Massachusetts, and I get to hang with celebrities. I mean, how lucky am I? Well, let's talk about the celebrity coup that people still scratch their heads and wonder. Donna Halper and one of the hottest rock groups of all time. Let's talk about Rush. And this is an era in which they actually had record companies and uh, oh, yeah. and record promoters and yep. all that yep. uh, heading, heading out to stations. Yep. But uh, you're famous for the work you did to bring Rush aboard. In fact, uh, they've dedicated some albums to you and all that, right? Yep. And I'm in a documentary about them, Beyond the Lighted Stage. And if people Google Donna Halper and Hollywood Walk of Fame, they can see me out on the Walk of Fame giving the band their star. That's really cool. So yep. how does it all start in the first place? Well, it started... And I've told the story before, so if you've heard it, just stay with me because it bears repeating. And the reason it bears repeating is because, again, we focus a lot on the doors that were closed or the people that were rude to us or this or that. But there are also incredible acts of generosity. There was a record promoter up in Canada. And from the time I was in college radio and a music director, I always played what were then called imports. And you couldn't just download them back then. (laughs) You know, you had to get the actual vinyl record. And there were stores in Boston and everywhere else that specialized in, oh, my God, here's the new stuff from England and here's the new stuff from Germany or the Netherlands or wherever else. And you'd wait for them to come in and it was so exciting. So I made friends with a lot of Canadian record promoters because, I mean, you know, they're our neighbors to the north. They got a great bunch of uh, musicians up there. And I started playing some of that stuff in college radio and then I kept playing it wherever I worked. So this Canadian record promoter, a guy named Bob Roper, sends me this Loving Hands at Home production. It's, it's kind of like a homebrew record. They hadn't been signed to a label. Um, the label was that they created. It was called Moon Records. I still have that original Rush record. And the, he sent it to me and said, basically, our label, A&M of Canada, there was A&M in the United States, mm-hmm. which was... Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert, A&M, um, the Tijuana Brass, they had a bunch of hits, right. Herb Alpert, this guy's in love with you, etc. But long story short, they had a record label in the States and they had a Canadian affiliate, okay? And Rush shopped their little loving hands at home record. They were a local club and bar band and they shopped their record and nothing, okay? But Bob Roper... As I said, in an act of altruism, sent it down to me. He did not have to do it. He wasn't getting paid, and neither was I. He just sent it with a note, and I'm paraphrasing the note. The note has not, you know, it's long gone and hard to find. But it, the sense of it was, my label's not going to sign these guys. They, we just don't think they're ready. 
But I hear something in this record. I think they've got potential. I've seen them play. See what you think. You've got good ears. You can pick a hit. See what you think. And I still remember I dropped the needle on Working Man, which was a long song. Back in those days, as a music director, you always looked for long songs, which were jokingly called bathroom songs, because, of course, whoever designed the station always designed the facilities like six miles down the road, and records are like three minutes, (laughs) and nature is calling. Now, I did not have to go, but as a music director, I had to think of my poor late-night person who might have to go, and there's nobody in the studio, and, you know, So occasionally they'd mistaken you mistakenly call out, hey, Jude, I mean, uh, hey, Donna. Uh All joking aside, the long songs were really important, but they had to be good songs or we wouldn't play them. It couldn't just be any long song. So I'm a first I'm looking for a long song, but then I'm looking for a good song. And I dropped the needle because, of course, it's vinyl records. I dropped the needle on Working Man, and I knew immediately. Now, Did I know that they'd become famous? Did I know that we'd be friends? No, that's not what I knew. What I knew was this is a perfect record for Cleveland. You've played songs, and we've all done it as DJs. You've played songs where you're like, this is going to resonate with the audience. I may personally not like it all that much, but boy, howdy, the audience is going to love this song. Well, this was one of those cases where, yeah, well, I get up at seven, yeah, go to work at nine, got no time for living. Yes, I'm working all the time. Cleveland was a factory <laughs> town back then. People were shift workers. They really did feel like they had no time for living because they were working all the time. And I just knew. This song is going to speak to my audience. And sure enough, I brought it down to Denny Sanders, who was on the air, and he played it. And phone calls. Is the new Led Zeppelin album out? Because the lead singer evidently on a tinny transistor radio sounded like Led Zeppelin. But no, Canadian rock band named Rush. Oh, can you play it again? And as you know from being a DJ... You're in the middle of playing a song, and somebody always calls up. Hey, could you play the Beatles? I'm playing it right now. Okay, could you play it again? No. (laughs) But later on, I'll be happy to play it, you know. So long story short, we started playing Working Men. It started getting requests. And we we got one copy. And people are like, where can I buy this? And I end up calling their management. Uh, They had two managers back then, calling them up. They were not expecting to hear from me. They didn't know that Bob Roper had sent the record down to to, um, WMMS in Cleveland. They had no idea. So they're like, "Uh, we're in Toronto. You're in – how did you get our record? And I told them the story, and they were like, wow, okay. And they sent a box down of copies of the Moon record, and I – took it to a store called Record Revolution. The guy that ran it, I still remember him, God rest his soul. His name was Peter Schlewen. And his thing, his niche, was he sold imports. Mm. If you wanted to buy a record from England, if you wanted to buy a record from Canada, Record Revolution. And the, it sold out. I 25 copies, Boom. Wow. Yeah. So that's how it all started. And they ended up coming down to Cleveland. They made an appearance. They played at the Allen Theater. But again, when you're a music director, you're thinking, 
how can I do something that my audience will love? If you had told me at the time, Jordan, oh, yeah, you're going to be friends with this band for 48 years, I would have said, yeah, right, because I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of people that have kept in touch over the years from, like, musicians. You do a favor, you're their best friend, they come in, they thank you, and then life just takes you in different directions. But Rush have always kept in touch. They are loyal. They are the kinds of people that appreciate whatever you do for them. Mm -hmm. Not just me. I mean, people along the way. That's just how they are. But it was indeed lightning in a bottle or lightning in a studio, the way that worked. Jordan, you know there's no predicting it. How many times? You were a DJ for years, okay? How many times did you play a record and think to yourself, this is going to be the stiff of all time. No one is ever going to buy this record. And it goes to number one. Yeah. And there's other records you play them and you're like, oh, my God, I could sit in a studio and play this all day. What a great song. And you're the only person that likes well, it. And you it said, dies a painful death. You said something death. I want to follow up on, and that is the key to it all is knowing your audience. Yep. And remember, you're not just doing this for your own edification yep. and your own joie de vie, whatever it is, you're doing it for a group of people, a mass of people in your demographic audience. Your job is to entertain them. And I got to say, growing up, listening to DJs like Arnie Ginsberg, like Bruce Bradley, like Dick Summer, I couldn't tell you whether they personally liked the songs that they were playing, but boy, they sounded like they did. They sounded like they were having such fun on the radio. And it isn't because it was like an act, you know, like they hated every minute of it. Of course not. There are days, I'm sure, when they hated every minute of it. But by and large, they loved what they were doing and playing the songs. Yeah, some of them you like, some of them you don't like. I found the same thing when I was a DJ. Sure. But just the job, being able to entertain the audience. What a privilege. And that job in its tense back then and its in its presentation and its performance is pretty much gone. I, I mean know. and it's a it's what an a art shame. form that that now people don't even recognize if they're not uh, familiar with When the I history. ask my students how many of you listen to radio? When I was teaching at Emerson back in the 80s, I was still a full-time consultant, but I always taught a course here and there Mm. just to make sure I was in touch with all the different demographics. And so, you know, I would ask my students back in the 80s, how many of you want to be a DJ and how many of you listen to Ray? A lot of hands would go up. By the 90s, fewer 2000s. Today, I can ask my students at Leslie, how many of you want to be a DJ? No hands. How many of you listen to the radio? Maybe a couple, but it's usually like, yeah, when I'm in my parents' car and they have it on. And I'm like, what a shame. But they're listening to the radio these days on devices, not radios, because every radio station is streaming. Oh, I know. And you know what? That's good things and bad things about that, too. I mean, I listen to Sirius XM. I like the 70s channel and the 80s channel and the 90s channel. It's great to just take whatever mood you're in that day. Sometimes I listen to big band because my parents turned me on to it. Sometimes I listen to, like, the most up-to-date, newest hits because I want to know what's going to be happening. There are some very entertaining announcers coming through in different formats. I've been on webcasts on YouTube, and that's kind of like a broadcast, too. So the definition of broadcasting has always changed. That doesn't bother me. What bothers me 
is the loss of DJs as best friends. It is so cool to know that you are entertaining that audience and that some lonely kid is sitting somewhere just like I was, feeling like, oh my God, that DJ, that person really understands who I am. They're playing my favorite songs. I mean, it's just that is what I miss. And there's a caustic sense to everything now. There's yeah. that sense of uh, antagonistic, uh, we're going to fight you on every step. And and even the morning zoos. I mean, I'm not, believe me, I am not a prude. I have been known to drop the F-bomb on more than one occasion. But I really do believe that when you're doing a morning show, your job is to entertain. And some folks take that to mean, oh, you know, let me get as close to the edge as I possibly can. You know, uh, let me use as much sexual innuendo as I possibly can. I just like things to be nice and fun and entertaining. And there's a time and a place for controversy. I don't think a morning show is that time or that Well, we, we were born and bred in the concept of the FCC Broadcast in the public's interest, convenience, ah, the and FCC, the Friendly Candy Company. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I'm talking about the old FCC. Yeah, by Fat the way. Cousin Charlie, we used to call but it. it. They would come the, in for inspections. They would inspect oh, you. Still, the public airwaves, and I think a lot of people have lost touch with that. Both programmers and uh, general managers and talent. Well, I think deregulation has been a mixed blessing. And I know that some of my more conservative friends are like, no, no, deregulation is wonderful. Eh, You know, I think we need a happy medium. I think we need an FCC that, you know, stays out of the programming decisions, but is still capable of jumping in when a station has just gone off the rails completely. Let's take a look at the information side of things and the talk side of things, because you and I are fans, and I still do talk radio, and you and I are fans of that genre. But what's happened to it? Oh, I know. David Brudnoy is doing backflips in his grave. Now, I got to say, David and I went back years, okay? For some people who don't know who David Brudnoy was, he was, in fact, the king of talk radio in this town, him and Jerry Williams. Um, But I think David Brudnoy was even better, to be honest with you. Um, I knew David for 40 years. He was on, I knew him when he was on WBZ. I knew him when he was on other stations. He was a professor of mine. We never agreed on anything politically, okay? I'm generally center-left, except on some issues I tend to be center, and on some I tend to be center-right. He was much more conservative libertarian, okay? So politically, we just weren't in the same place. But so what? His talk show was the space of conversation. He was very old school about that. He might have on somebody who was just an absolute lefty, and they would talk about the issues. He had Ted Kennedy, okay, the king of the lefties. He had Ted Kennedy on his show. They were best friends, okay? And the two of them, again, did not agree on much of anything. But what they agreed on was the basic respect and the ability to debate the issues. That's what I miss, okay? I miss being able to debate the issues, being courteous, not feeling the need to call each other rude names, not mocking the other person. Can't we just disagree, 
hear each other's point of view, and see if we can find some common ground. I go back to the era when talk radio was supposed to be informational, not just confrontational. Well, the echo chamber, it turns out to be rather boring after a while. Oh, God, and, yes. And whether it's TV news or whatever it might be, it's a it's it's so predictable and so boring if it's all the same. But it also, it hurts speaking you. Speaking to the choir. It, it hurts you, okay? If the only people you ever talk to, if you're a righty and you're only talking to other righties, if you're a lefty and you're only talking to other lefties, there's 50% of the universe that you're not talking to. And if you've been taught that they are the enemy, okay, as as a friendly center lefty, and the operant word there is friendly, uh, conservatives are not my enemy. Conservatives are people that I don't always agree with, but sometimes I do. And we will never know how much I agree or how much I disagree if I don't talk to them. And the same thing the other way. So I think this whole idea of demonizing anyone who's different from you, it it's, hasn't made for good radio and it doesn't make for a good society either. I'm very glad you're still teaching and I know you, you don't shy away from expressing what you just expressed to students and anyone who will listen. We and need- I insist, by the way, that they read stuff from both sides yeah. and that they watch stuff. I've, I've had people say, oh, you're a lefty, so you're probably indoctrinate. No, far from it. Most good professors, and I am hesitant to call myself good because, you know what, I'll let other people decide that. But most good professors believe the same thing that most good journalists believe. Yes, I have my opinion, but there's a time and a place. And my job is to inform and to get students to perform critical thinking and critical analysis. If the only thing you're doing, and this is not just in politics, if the only thing you're doing is watching videos from folks you like, you are losing the opportunity to maybe expose yourself to something that might speak to you in some way. You just never know. Wise words from a wise lady who's not uh, quiet on just about any subject. Let's talk baseball for just a second before we wrap up. Yes. Baseball has undergone some changes this season with rules changes speeding up the game. Are you pro or con? Yes. (laughs) I'm I'm a little, no, seriously, I'm a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, There's a part of me that says, yes, a faster game because, oh, my God, it was taken like five hours. I mean, you could raise a family before. You, you know? <laughs> it's like, hey, Junior was only three when we started, yeah. you know, and, and that's just too much. You know, you got the guy on the mound and he's like, you know, taking off his hat and he's putting his hat back on again. And he's, you know, yeah. like reading his emails and this and that, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, that was getting to be a little bit too much. On the other hand. I'm not persuaded that making everybody do everything in eight seconds is a good idea. I think we're in that shakedown portion, okay, where it's sort of like you put in the new rule and then you find out that eh, the new rule doesn't always work. So you kind of try to find some modifications. But I think the basic theory, yeah, there was a time when you could spend a day at the ballpark and it was actually a day. Now it's like six months. And so, yeah, I, I think it. 
had gone a little bit off the rails with all of the delays and the fidgeting and the this and that. Now I think it's time to look at how are these new rules working? Is it causing people to press too much? Is there, you know, are there injuries resulting? And let's see if things need to be modified. But the theory behind it, yeah, I, I'm, I support that. Spoken like a true Hall of Famer, not Cooperstown yet. Oh, I was there. Well, I, I've been there, too. Yes, I gave a talk in Cooperstown <laughs> oh, in did? 2017. Yes, wow, I did. Wow, good for you. And I do a lot of writing for Sabre for the Society of American Baseball Research. My expertise is in the Negro Leagues and also in women baseball writers, because there were women baseball mm. writers even years ago, and also in some of the forgotten men sports writers, because just like DJs, these were the people that spoke to us. These were the people that kept us informed. I still remember as a kid being so excited when the newspaper, you know, my father would bring home the newspaper and I couldn't wait to read the sports section because there were a couple of sports writers that I just loved and I was real eager to see what they said about the game. So, yeah, I, I really think those people, they deserve to have their stories told, too. You are a walking poster child for passion. I love mm. it. I love it. And it's so nice to have you finally sit down for a few minutes because you're so busy to uh, to s share some of that passion with well, us. I'm, I'm just happy to be alive, okay? I mean, I, that sounds like the cliche of all time, but as I've said on more than one occasion, I'm a cancer survivor, as are many people that I know in our demographic. But the fact is, just about every woman in my family did not have a good outcome. By the grace of God, I'm still here. My sister is also still here. But an awful lot of us, they're not. Mm. And I honor their memory. And every day, even on my worst day, I am very grateful to be alive. I am grateful to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And you know what? I'm grateful to be able to talk with you because I've admired your work for years. And it's so cool to be able to just sit down with people whose work you admire and just be able to have a nice conversation. We need more of that. Touche. Thank you so much. Great to see you. And again, uh, I'm going to be on that stage as this is now unveiled uh, as a recording uh, what, three weeks, two weeks, something yeah, like that? Yeah, I can't believe I still can't believe it. And uh, you will be up there proudly being introduced by Morgan White Jr., yes. a radio colleague of mine and a friend of a yours. A gentleman, a gentleman. So what a great announcer he is. He is old school entertaining announcer. Well, it's all about the, love of the, the love of the business personality. and personality. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Check out her website, Donna. Halper, H-A-L-P-E-R dot com. All kinds of writing, research, and her book, Boston Radio, 1920 to 2010. And I'm honored to be in there, by the way. An incredible person. Hearty congratulations for being inducted into the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Hey, this was so much fun. We'll launch another podcast in just a few days. Find out more at jordanrich.com. And thank you for subscribing and downloading. We really appreciate it. Till next time, JR reminding you to be well so you can do good. Take care.